0: Hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome to 48. Uh, That noise you're hearing is my refrigerator. Normally, I turn it off when I'm recording. You see, there's this little power strip, a bright orange button glowing, reminding me that it's the night before this episode is to post, and I still have yet to even begin to write it, let alone record it, edit, and compose the music. That's the reason I'm recording the refrigerator, because it's there. My not so subtle ticking timer. The imaginary hourglass whose sand flows in a steady, measured descent. Funny thing about hourglasses, they, the sand, isn't affected by pressure. What I mean is, unlike water, where the pressure at the bottom of a container is directly affected by the height of the liquid in the container, the hourglass, the sand, is different. The shape of an hourglass creates friction between the sand and the glass itself, thereby canceling out any pressure directed at the bottom of the hole. The sand runs at a constant speed and doesn't accelerate through the hole like liquid would, as illustrated by Bernoulli's principle. Ah. Here I go, blathering on about refrigerators and hourglasses. Time, pressure. This was going to be an episode about endurance. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago in episode 46, The 40% rule. I've become somewhat obsessed with ultra endurance races and the athletes that participate in them. One of my favorite people in this world is Rich Roll. And if you don't know Rich, he's the host of the mega successful Rich Roll podcast and author of Finding Ultra, a story about his journey. And in short, at 40 years old, Rich's life was way out of control. He was drinking heavily, 50 pounds overweight. You know the story. He began to change his habits, he started running. And within two years, he was competing with the world's best athletes in the Ultraman World Championship, which is a 320-mile ordeal that combines running, swimming, and cycling. It's an amazing story and a great book, but this isn't about that right now. A really bad tape from a rehearsal room in Nashville, Tennessee, from 1993. It's a terrible recording. The tape recorder was a small, handheld piece of crap. The room was a hundred degrees. The guy singing is Lee Clayton. You probably never heard of him, and that's a shame. But understandable. You see, he's been away from the music industry for decades. His first record came out way back in 1973, simply titled Lee Clayton. And despite having stars like Carly Simon on the record, it was a commercial disaster. But Lee was immediately inducted into the country music outlaws, along with Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Prine, and Now I don't even know how to begin to tell you his story except to say that it begins when he got divorced in 1967. He joins the Air Force and decides he wants to fly jets. He breaks the sound barrier in his F-101 and then nearly dies when he spins that jet at 1,500 feet of elevation. He ends up on the Nashville singer-songwriter scene, and because of help from his friends like Prine and Christopherson, he signs a record deal and releases his most iconic album in 1973, Naked Child. It's a record you can't compare to anything before it or after it. But Lee, being Lee, got into an argument with the producer and decided to steal the tapes and hide them under his bed. Eventually, he returned them, Naked Child, was so raw and emotional, the legend has it that the musicians who played on the record, one of them being the legendary J.J. Cale, couldn't do more than one single take. And that take is on the record. Lee was never shy about his despair or his loneliness. He wrote about it. He was loner and proud of it. Other artists began to cut Lee's songs. Waylon Jennings cut Ladies Love Outlaws. Willie Nelson cut If You Could Touch Her At All. And then the Highwaymen cut Silver Stallion. And Lee could then finally stop living in his car. But as music businesses want to do, it all went south. Lee discovered tequila and cocaine. But in the late 80s, a guy from a small Irish band called U2 comes to Nashville to meet his idol. Bono said at the time, there's only one country singer who's influenced me and that's Lee Clayton. Now I met Lee Clayton in 1992 as he was experiencing a small resurgence. I was sitting at one of Nashville's favorite watering holes called the Iguana with my roommate and longtime friend Romo. He was tending bar. Because of that, my broke ass could actually afford to drink there. Another friend of ours, Eric, was on the stool next to me, and Lee was at the corner. I'd heard about the legend of Lee Clayton, but there he was in the flesh. Lee was telling us he needed to hire a band for a European tour he was lining up. And Romo jokingly said from behind the bar, Well, here's your band. I'll play bass, and pointing to me, he said, there's your drummer, and to Eric, he's your guitar player. Lee? He stood up, turned around, and walked out. We we all kind of looked at each other. Way to go, Romo. Guess he didn't really like that idea. A few minutes later, Lee came back in with three cassette tapes. He gave one to each of us and said, meet back here on Friday night, we'll talk. We booked a rehearsal the one you just heard at the intro of the show, our first rehearsal with Lee Clayton. A few weeks or so later, we were all on our way to Amsterdam to open the tour at the famous Paradiso Club. The rumor was a writer from Rolling Stone Europe was going to be there. It was sold out. The place was crazy. We did not feel ready. It was surreal hitting the stage that night. It was a blur. We have no pictures from that tour but I do have one of the greatest memories of my musical life from that night. See, we had just played our last song of the set. We hadn't rehearsed an encore. We had no other songs, just the ones we'd rehearsed. The crowd wouldn't leave. The manager of the club came downstairs to the dressing room and said, you got to do something. They'll tear the place apart. Lee looked up at us and said, get up there. And me and Romo and Eric climbed the stairs, all of us looking at each other, thinking the same thing. We can't screw this up, man. Rolling Stone is here. What the hell are we going to play? The crowd went nuts when they saw our silhouettes on the side of the stage. I sat behind my drums, Romo picked up his bass, and Eric, from nowhere, launches into Jimi Hendrix's voodoo child. The intro of the song still gives me chills to this day. We'd never rehearsed it. In fact... The only one who'd ever played it on stage was Eric. We blasted through the intro and into the first verse with, like, reckless abandon. I was playing so hard. I remember bashing the shit out of my drums, and the place was going nuts. But we had no idea how we were going to end it, and we really didn't care. And then, from the depths of the dressing room came this dark figure wearing a hooded sweatshirt with the hood up. It was Lee. He was stomping around the stage, hunched over like a madman. We were just as surprised as a crowd, and all of us looked at each other like, what the (sighs) ffff? So we lowered the intensity, and Lee stepped up to the mic, and then started reciting one of his poems over the verse of Voodoo Child. It was brilliant, and volatile, completely improv, and we were in a moment. We just all kind of went with it. After a few minutes of this, Lee stomped off the stage, And we somehow figured out how to end it, I'm sure, in a noisy, messy train wreck of a crescendo of cymbals and wailing guitar. The place went crazy over Lee's quote, interpretation of Voodoo Child. We were asked about it at every show that followed. The crowd screamed, Voodoo Child, every night. We began to dread it. But we made a pact. We never played Voodoo Child ever again. That tour was crazy. Lee was an eccentric dude. We smoked a lot of pot and sat on hotel beds until dawn listening to his stories. And he worked me harder than any artist I've ever played with. He demanded that I play just behind the beat. And he called it the 2% rule. He explained it like this and I'll probably get it wrong, but it was something like this, what the hell? He said when you're flying a jet, you push the throttle to the limit and then you back it back 2%. Said it feels like you're riding just at the edge. When I wasn't playing the way he liked, he stopped the rehearsal. If he didn't like the way the song was feeling live and in the moment, he'd just turn around and shout, go to the bridge, and then he'd end the song and expect us all to be on point and end with him. It's because of Lee that I feel like, even today, I could get on stage tomorrow, having never heard the lick of someone's music, and be able to follow along. Lee Clayton at the time, man, he was a hard nut to crack. And just as we were all getting ready to depart for Ireland to record a record and do a second tour, he fired all of us. It ended really badly. And in 2001, I cut my second record, American Dream, and I tracked Lee down, which was like finding a unicorn. I met him for coffee and I gave him a copy, a rough copy, of my record. I had him in the liner notes. I thanked him. He actually ended up writing new liner notes. And what he wrote is on the inside of my record to this day. I'm really proud of that music and I'm glad I patched it up with Lee. Glad I have a tiny piece of him. A couple of months ago, I went on the hunt again to find Lee. I wanted to have him as a guest on this show. I didn't think he'd agree, but I was going to offer to fly to Nashville and do it in person rather than have him fuss with the online thing. I emailed him and he responded. I emailed him again, and he didn't respond. A few weeks ago, I got a message that Lee passed away, and tonight, as I was sitting here kicking my own ass for not having my episode done, I got a text from a dear friend and Lee's old manager. He sent me the one lone article written confirming the death of Lee Clayton. Lee Clayton deserved better. He was as unique as they come. He called himself True Love. He drove a white Cadillac Eldorado, and he called it Bigger White. He'd say, me and Bigger White. He deserved better. So here it is. My episode that is late as shit. The one that was supposed to be about endurance that actually just might be about that very thing. Lee may not have run a 320-mile race, but he endured. As best he could. When fame fades and money runs out, the world can be a lonely place. But Lee knew that. I want to end with a lyric from the first track from Lee's iconic Naked Child record. I think about my thoughts at Paris, of fine wine, women, and precious things. I think about my life on the midnight highway, the life of a renegade king. 20 years they've called me a bandit. 20 years I've been on the run. 20 years defending my honor. 20 years harming no one. And I ride, I ride alone.